cue that fancy intro music. It's time to unleash your star power and own your dreams without selling your soul. It's time for some creative freedom. I'm Lisa Robin Young, and I'm a creative entrepreneur just like you. I'm also a business coach, helping people across the creative spectrum make great money doing what they love. If you're done with being the world's best kept secret and ready to shine like the star you are, creative freedom is for you. Let's get started. I was talking with a colleague the other day. They're working on a book and have shopped their proposal to a bunch of outlets. And while the editors are loving the concept of the book, they're taking a pass. My colleague was a little stumped as to why, but then they let slip a bit of feedback from one editor that was kind of surprising. Essentially, the editor thought that it was hypocritical or ironic that my colleague was writing a critique about an industry that they were deeply rooted in. And rather than seeing this as an insider's look or a tell-all, the editor was hung up on what gave my colleague the street cred to write a book like this in the first place. That's when they told me that their agent thought it would be too confusing and it would be clearer and easier to just say they're an expert in one field without adding any of my colleague's career contacts or work history. But every single pitch they sent was getting turned down, so they were starting to rethink that strategy. We had a conversation about what it means to let people see you as you fully are. Wart sparkles and all, is what I like to say, <laughs> so that they can get a context, right? The bigger picture of what you're about. And while I get that their agent was looking for an easy set of handlebars to pitch this book, and by extension, pitch my colleague, there's just no easy way to classify this person because they're a fusion creative. So finally, I just said, well, if your book proposal bio doesn't talk about all of who you are, then it's not your book. My colleague went off to work on revising their bio for their proposal. Later, I got a text saying, well, let's hope my agent agrees. So I replied in my usual smart ass tone, your agent is an advisor, not the boss. Sometimes you have to do some gentle pushback and stand your ground. I know I had to with my first book. And look, I get it. A book deal is a big deal. And for whatever ridiculous reason, once you've pitched a book publisher, you can't pitch the same book again, no matter what kind of changes you make to it. And I think that's silly, but that's apparently how it works in that world. So once you pitched, that's it. There's no going back. That means you pretty much got to nail it the first time or you can kiss that opportunity goodbye, which is a lot of pressure. And it gets pretty disheartening getting all those rejections, especially when you know you've got something great to share with the world. I think Stephen King got so many rejections, he threw his book in the trash and his wife had to go dig it out. But this is where I think the agent playing it safe may have done more harm than good. And I admit that hindsight is twenty twenty here, so it is easy for me to just sit here and say all of this. But let's look more closely at how an agent operates in the first place. Because on the one hand... An agent wants to get you the best possible deal because that means they'll get the best possible deal. An agent is also a fiduciary, meaning they act in a fiduciary capacity, which means they've got a responsibility to you as their client to do their utmost to serve you and put your interests ahead of their own. That's how literary agents work, or that's how they're supposed to work. But what if doing what's in your best interests jeopardizes their interests. They're still supposed to put you first, but will that really happen? Because as a professional, an agent knows the formulas that have worked time and again. 
And this agent was telling my client that putting too many different details about their career in their author bio might confuse the editors instead of encouraging them to say yes to the book proposal. And so their logic was then keep it simple. You've got a better chance of getting someone to say yes to the book if you keep it simple. But how many different details is really too many? I mean, if you craft a compelling bio, all the right details will make the bio not break it. And a book proposal is kind of like a sales page, right? And we have all heard, how long is it too long for a sales page? How long is too long? Well, it needs to be exactly the right length to say what it needs to say. Not a word more, not a word less. So an agent stands in this gray area, even as a fiduciary, because they want to see you get something rather than crickets all the time. Getting someone to say yes to your book means they did their job, right? And if you get too many crickets, you'll probably fire them. So like we talked about in our last episode, it's easy for them to lean on formulas that have worked in the past. Well, this is the ticket to a top 10 hit. We've done it six times already. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Let's just do it the safe way that we are relatively sure will work because it's already been done before. Even though the investment world teaches us that past performance isn't indicative of future results. And for a publisher, buying a book is definitely an investment. And look, tastes and trends change. Formulas that once worked, especially when it comes to marketing, don't always keep working. So taking the safe route and keeping the bio of my colleague simple may actually have been a disservice to my colleague in this instance. Now again, hindsight and all that, but it's definitely worth considering based on the feedback that the publishers have given them up to this point. Now we'll see where the road takes them as they start pitching this new version of their bio and their book proposal. But that's today's question. Do you have to choose between playing it safe or taking risks all the time if you want to be successful? Entrepreneurship is inherently risky, but is the only path to success found by taking big risks all the time? Do you really have to choose between safety and security and being successful at the level it brings the income, the impact, and the influence that you know is meant for you? Well, the short answer is no, so long as <laughs> you understand a few things that I'm going to lay out for you in today's show. You've got to get clear on what success and safety look like for you. Strike a balance between protection and calculated risks. I said calculated risks. And take time for the four R's if you want to have the success that you dream of. And here's your reminder to pop over to creativefreedomshow.com and download the guide that accompanies this episode. Log into the Rising Tide members area, navigate to season seven, scroll on down to episode five, and your handy dandy guide is already waiting for you. Not already a member? Well, get over there because all it takes is your name and your email and you're in. Now, in our last episode, we talked about how the past over paradox is intimately connected to the fear of becoming a target for haters, cancel culture, trolls, etc. And the story I hear time and again from clients is something along the lines of, I'm afraid that if I'm going to make one wrong move and it's all going to topple down on me, right? The higher you rise, the bigger the target on your back. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? Well, that sentiment keeps people in a comfortable place that actually gets more frustrating and less comfortable as time goes on. That's when you start to hear the other side of the Passover paradox coin. The one that says, why are they getting that recognition when I know I'm better? My clients tell me I'm better. I fix the problems those other guys created. What's more, you're probably already carrying a lot. And the idea of also having to deal with that kind of negative attention 
does not feel expansive, fulfilling, or joyful in the least. I mean, nobody wants haters. And when you've already got a full plate, comments and attacks like that can be the straw that breaks your back. This leaves you thinking that you have to choose safety over the real success that you crave. And the result is a stuckness that also leaves you depleted. So what if we can flip this script and show you a new approach? And let me rip the Band-Aid off first and say that safety is an illusion. (laughs) I have blogged about it several times in the past 10 years. Many authors have echoed similar sentiments. Seth Godin once said, quote, if you are deliberately trying to create a future that feels safe, you will willfully ignore the future that is likely, end quote. So safety, control, certainty, they're all illusions based on something else entirely. Comfort. We want to be comfortable. We want to know we can operate under given conditions. And if we don't think we can operate under those conditions, we don't feel safe or we lack certainty or we have no control. Now, what we can say is that safety or comfort is relative. Some folks can readily do what's uncomfortable. They've gotten comfortable with discomfort, as the saying goes. Most folks, though, need as much clarity as they can muster to help them make the most confident decision possible in the moment. Now, in the moment is key because data changes. Clarity begets confidence, which begets courage to act. When I work with clients through the Star Power Method, one of the courageous actions you have to take is facing your fears. You've got to be willing to recognize that there's real fear, real stuff to be concerned about in the world, like pandemics, violence, and systemic oppressions that can put you in harm's way. And then you also need to be able to distinguish real fears from imagined or metaphorical fear, metaphorical threats. Our primal brains can't tell the difference. So it's up to us, it's up to you to lead your brain. Now, most of us think of safety and we have certain images in our head. The truth is we really can't be certain or sure of anything. And thus, safety is an illusion. It's a strongly held illusion. (laughs) And there are things that we can do to improve our sense of safety. But in reality, it could all come crashing down at any time. A comet could hit me right now. (laughs) Like it could happen right? The pandemic that shall not be named was, and still is, as I record this, a very powerful example of that. No one could predict exactly how a global spread of a virus would impact us or impact us economically. There were guesses and theories, and some of it has been accurate, and some of it has been completely off the mark. And yet we all did what we thought was best for us based on the information we've had access to over time. I know friends who are using Clorox wipes to clean their fruits and vegetables based on the information they had at the time. And our decisions about what to do have evolved as the availability of information has evolved. So your definition of safety matters. If you're defining being safe as nothing ever goes wrong, or if it does, I have all the resources I need to solve the problem instantly, then you're up the creek without a paddle, my friend. Nothing in life is ever like that. Why would your business be any different? I recently got a chance to watch Jennifer Lopez's documentary Halftime, and it struck me how even the day before the halftime show, things were still up in the air. Things they had rehearsed for months. They were being called into question by the powers that be at the NFL. Now, J-Lo had about six months, I think, to prep for her six-minute portion of a 12-minute show. She had to coordinate with Shakira and come to terms on who was doing what, where, and how. 
She had to get approval from the NFL and the broadcast network. She did all of that. And there were still lots of things in any given moment that could have gone completely off the rails. For all of that rehearsing, nothing was safe. Anything could have been scrapped at a moment's notice. Heck, the year Prince played the Super Bowl, it rained. I mean, can you imagine the sound engineer that night? He, he decides, Prince decides, he's going to just let the audience sing. <laughs> so the engineer's adjusting these levels on the fly that they had rehearsed a different way in the days leading up to the event. And Prince is all, eh, let the crowd sing and I'll play my guitar. <laughs> so safety is relative. And that's what I mean when I say safety is an illusion. Because it was probably more comfortable for Prince to focus on playing guitar in the rain <laughs> and let someone else sing that night. So that's what he leaned into because that was what was comfortable. But even still, that level of relative safety was still a pretty big risk to other people. Now, in an interview that Don Misher did, he was the producer of the halftime show. He said, Prince was running with four different electric guitars. The floor was made from some kind of a slick tile that was even more slippery when it was wet. And the two dancers that Prince had with him, called the twins, were wearing very high heels. Don was panicked and he had no idea what was going to happen next. All he could do was sit and watch as it rained and hope and pray that everything would turn out okay and nobody would break a leg or end up electrocuted. So the producer is sitting in relative safety up in the booth, but he's terrified. While Prince, who's in real potential danger, is cool as a cucumber on the stage saying, can we make it rain more? <laughs> Who was at the greater risk here? Who was in more danger here? Prince's keyboardist, Morris Hayes, was interviewed by Billboard about 10 years after that show. And he said there were multiple contingencies just in case of the weather. Now, according to Hayes, quote, on the Friday before the game, we ran through the whole performance and they filmed it just in case there was an anomaly with the weather or something. They knew a storm was coming and the production was amazing. They had a plan B, plan C, plan D. They had everything figured out. Even how we plugged into our equipment so water wouldn't get into the electrical sockets. Everything that could have gone wrong didn't. And even though the equipment got wet, oddly enough, everything worked until the show was over. And then once we turned it all off, they wouldn't turn back on again. They were dead. <laughs> we autographed them and auctioned them off. And this still goes down in history as one of the best Super Bowl halftime performances of all time. There was actually a story about a journalist from China who stopped Don on the street and said, how many gallon, how many trucks of water did you have to get to get it to rain purple that night? And Don's like, uh, no, that was not, we did not plan that. That was not in the recording. That was not in the script, folks. So no matter how many plans you make, you never really know what to expect. You can't control the outcomes. All you can do is influence them with the plans you make and the way you execute on those plans. Nobody, I don't care who they are or how well put together they appear, has their shit together 100% of the time, myself included. So you need to think hard about what you mean by safety. Physical and bodily preservation, yes, you can build a business that keeps your mind, body, and spirit protected. In fact, that's an imperative of the work I do with my clients. It's how I try to run my own business. There are no coaching emergencies. There are no life-threatening musical catastrophes. The world will not end if we need to press pause on the podcast production schedule so that I can move my family from Tennessee to Indiana. Now, did I want to do that? Heck no. I even tried to record an episode while we were holed up in hotel room for three weeks. 
But that didn't really work because there were four of us holed up in a hotel room for nearly a month. So we made the decision to hold off until I was back in my usual office setup where I had better influence over the sound and production quality. There's still stuff that happens, but I've got a little more influence here. And there are folks who would give me crap about not being consistent because their definition of consistency doesn't match mine. To them, frequency and consistency are the same thing. To me, they're different. Does my show have the same level of quality even if we've had to wait a few weeks? Yes, then it's consistent in my book. Consistent quality, consistent messaging, positioning, branding. It would have been a disaster to me to try and push out an episode or three while we were in the hotel with fans kicking out in the background, kids playing video games, people taking showers and flushing toilets. I mean, this was a one-bedroom hotel suite. I had all I could do to see my clients in a private space. To tell everybody to keep it down or turn the AC off while I'm recording was asking just a bit too much at the time. But that's my definition of safety or comfort. What's yours? Because that's what really matters. And while we're talking about your definition of safety, we also need to look at your definition of success. I say this over and over. Success is a destination and you're already there. Every decision you've made has led you to the version of success you see around you right now. Now, if this feels safe to you and you're happy with it, then celebrate because you've just discovered the answer to the question we posed at the beginning of the show. Yes, you can, in fact, have relative safety and still be successful on your own terms. But if you're not happy with it, no amount of feeling safe will assuage your feelings of dissatisfaction. So you've got some deciding to do. That doesn't mean you have to take massive action. It just means you have to do something differently. What changes are you going to make? Maybe your income isn't where you want it to be and you've been churning out the same greatest hits to your audience year after year to diminishing returns. I've heard plenty of people recently say things like, oh, it's a recession. People aren't buying like they used to. Or I didn't have anybody buy during my last launch like they did before. Well, maybe it's a recession, but Maybe that's because the same old, same old ain't cutting it anymore. Dr. Philip Tetlock, author, professor at both Wharton Business School and the UPenn College of Arts and Sciences, and most likely a fusion or a linear cusp creative, said, quote, people often assume when a decision is followed by a good outcome that the decision was good, which isn't always true, and it can be dangerous if it blinds us to flaws in our thinking, end quote. Or said differently, (laughs) just because it worked once doesn't mean it will always work that way. It doesn't mean you made a good decision. You could have just been riding a lucky streak or a bull market. That old saw, everyone's a genius in a bull market, comes to mind. You can't stay married to your darlings. Even if you're evolving and changing and seeing the world differently, wouldn't it make sense that your audience is as well? You need to do something differently. And even if that something doesn't turn out the way you want it to, the motion it creates can lead to momentum in the direction of your dream. I liken it to what Howard Marks said, uh, the investment advisor, not the Welsh drug smuggler. (laughs) He said, a good decision is one that's optimal at the time that it's made when the future is by definition unknown. So it could have been a good decision then, but that doesn't mean it's a good decision now. And here's the bigger problem I see so frequently living by someone else's definition of success. You look around and see everyone around you pulling in six or seven or eight figures and you start thinking that that is what success is and you're not there yet. 
or you see someone else going after something that's not even on your radar and you feel a twinge of, hmm, what is that? Hmm, envy? Hmm, jealousy? Oh, something else? Well, who knows? Because you don't take time enough to really sit with it because you've been told by some guru somewhere that jealousy or envy is a good thing that points you to what you really want for yourself or some such. And I kind of agree. I mean, it definitely is a sign of something. Your feelings are valid indicators that something is going on. But what exactly? And you can't know that without doing some investigating, without sitting with those feelings and seeing what comes up. Instead, though, I see countless creatives and entrepreneurs alike saying, ooh, I want what they've got. And then they go chasing down that dream. Tom Petty said, running down a dream that never would come to me. Well, maybe that's not your dream, sunshine. Maybe it points to something similar to your dream. Remember, your goal isn't always the goal. So taking some time to reflect before going off half-cocked in a direction makes a difference. Really think about what success looks like for you for the next six months to a year. Each fall, we're coming up on that time again, the end of every September, I gather a small group of clients for a planning retreat. Now we do a lot of things, but the first thing we do is home in on how they are defining success for the next 12 months in each of the five key areas of success that I teach. Something that you've already done to some degree if you've been following along with the past episodes. You've got to start with those definitions because everything else comes out of that. So once you've got these definitions, you don't just put them on a shelf and start your engines. No, you keep coming back to them throughout the year. Is this still really what matters to me? Is this still my definition of success? Can I run with these goals for another six to 12 months? And if not, you've got some decisions to make. You've got some different choices to make. And if they do still matter, if they are still important, then it's up to you to stay the course and not be distracted by the shiny goals of other people. Hell yes, six figures is sexy AF. But if it's not doable, understandable, meaningful, and believable as a goal for you right now, as you're looking at your definition of success, then it's a hard pass for now. Not forever, but for now. I don't see enough entrepreneurs saying no often enough. I don't see enough creatives standing their ground on what really matters to them. And it's easy to see why. In a world where marketing is designed to make us feel like we need the next big whatever, or we won't be complete, we won't be good enough, or we simply won't win the day, whatever the hell that means. Look, like it or not, if you're on the rise, you're already a target. Very few celebrities go their entire career without having a hater. Even beloved actress Betty White had haters. Specifically, B. Arthur was said to be jealous and it was easy for her to hate on Betty despite the fact that Betty White adored her. And she wasn't the only one. If you Google Betty White haters, you'll find a ton of results. And Mother Teresa was no saint in the eyes of many as well. But here's the thing about both those people. They were very much unapologetic about who they were. So if you're going to be a target, be one for the right reasons. Stand for something. Speak up and stand on your principles and beliefs because it doesn't matter what you believe or stand for. Someone is going to disagree with you and probably hate you for it without even knowing. Support causes and voices you believe in. Things that matter to you. Stand on your values and communicate them to your fans so that they can support you too. Because for all the haters and ways that you could potentially become a target, 
your raving fans can become part of your environment of empowerment. They will defend you to the people in their circle of influence. They'll tell people why they're wrong about you. If we've learned anything from the cult of personality that is our former president, it's that your strongest supporters will go down with you in a sinking ship. It's probably taking things a little too far in my opinion, but it's a very visible example of what can happen when you find your people. Just be sure you don't drink your own Kool-Aid like he did. And I think that's what makes Betty White so lovable to so many. Her principles, values, and beliefs are inclusive. She never had a problem speaking them and sharing them. And her focus wasn't on her. It wasn't me, me, me all the time. It was, hey, I have this platform. These are the causes and people that matter to me. How can I share that and encourage other people to see my worldview? Let them make up their own minds, but let me show them what I see. Well, here's something I could do. I like animals. Let's do a show about animals. Let me walk my talk and contribute to causes and donate my time to caring for animals. Let me show people what matters to me instead of just talking about it. There are plenty of people, as I've said, that don't believe what Betty believed. They don't like what she liked. They couldn't care less about Betty White. And yet the people who do care, who do love her, are still singing her praises long after her death. She created and showed up for them even when others may have preferred she never do another public appearance ever again. There's a quote that says something about staying safe in the harbor isn't what boats are made for. Choosing safety might keep you comfortable, but creativity and visibility require experimentation and a smidge of risk. Calculated risk, mind you. Again, I'm not asking you to play in traffic here. By all means, play it safe when it comes to your true physical safety and your well-being. Create a sanctuary for yourself, an environment of empowerment that allows you to rest, recover, and build yourself up between your daring adventures. Take important precautions as you are out in the world. Have a buddy or security or whatever protection your level of celebrity and influence require. Don't go out alone if it could put you in harm's way. I hate that I even have to say that but there's strength in numbers. Don't make yourself a victim, as my junior high school social studies teacher often said. There's a difference between being a target and being a victim. And very often, (laughs) the difference is in how you've prepared for whatever it is you're about to undertake. Recognize legitimate threats and distinguish them from perceived threats. Someone threatening your life, even what seems like a joking manner, don't play, report that shit. Protect yourself and make it clear that behavior like that isn't tolerated in your circle. Your well-being is your livelihood. And if you've got a team, it's their livelihood as well. One of the reasons the Beyonce's and JLo's of the world have an entourage is so that there's someone to handle anything that might take them out of their zone of genius. I've seen it up close. Don't talk to the artist in a certain way. Call them by this name only. Those things seem ridiculous until you look closer and realize that they are in a zone. They are creating and managing a small economic system. Their success means the success of everyone on their team. Their income supports and provides incomes of dozens, if not hundreds of other people. You've got to care for that golden goose, so to speak. And I realize that may sound a little cold or calculating, but that's the plain truth of it. They've become masterful at creating an environment that empowers them to be at their absolute best. They had to because they know the consequences of what happens when they are not at their best. 
whether or not you've got designs on playing at that level, it's important to keep in mind as you're building your environment of empowerment. Who do you need on your side? Who do you need in your entourage? Playing it safe is important sometimes. Physical well-being requires rest, relaxation, recreation, and recovery. The four R's as I like to call them. Rest is doing something. Relaxing is doing something. Recreation and having fun, playing is doing something. And recovery is doing something. Even if it's not the thing you want to be doing, it's doing something. Build yourself up so that you can face your fears with confidence and strength. And as you do, you're likely to upset someone, even if it's just yourself. Remember, we can be our own worst critic at times, and that's part of facing your fears as well. But if you recognize the difference between real and metaphorical threats, get clear on what success and safety look like for you, take the appropriate actions to protect yourself and take calculated risks to step out of your comfort zone, and experiment once in a while and remember to take time for the four R's, you most definitely can have a level of relative safety and the success that you dream of. You don't have to choose one or the other. That's it for this episode. Next time, we're going to dig a little deeper into how to grow your audience without becoming a target. And I'll probably tip your apple cart in that episode too. So be sure you're subscribed to get notified, hit the bell, kiss your mama, leave a review, whatever else is the hot thing to do right now so that you'll know about our upcoming episodes. I sure hope we'll see you there. And until then, for more inspiration and education to help you unleash your star power and own your dreams without selling your soul, come see what's shaken over at creativefreedomshow.com. You know you want to. 